Well, good morning. We are tasked this morning with answering the question of what is next. But before we answer that question, I have a question that I would like to ask you. It's a very simple question. Where were you on the night of January the 4th, 2006? See, I have people in this room, like my little friends Ben and Josiah down here. They were not alive in January of 2006. Some of you don't remember where you were last week. And so asking you about January 4th, 2006 is kind of hard. But I can tell you exactly where I was. I was at 2908 Bamboo Street, Mesquite, Texas, and I had friends who came over to my house. I had one of my seminary professors over to my house, and we were about to partake in the national championship game with the USC Trojans and my Texas Longhorns. And my, um, that's right, that's right. All right, so we all know how that game ended. We, um, my friends got to experience what it's like to watch a high-pressure game with me. And for me, it's highly stressful. For them, it was highly entertaining. And I, I rode the highs and the lows. It was up and down. And then at the end, Vince is sitting there, and he gets the snap, and he makes his read, and he takes off for the corner of the end zone, and he just slides right in, and Texas wins the game, and I lose my mind. Okay, my shirt has come off and I've thrown it and I am running around the house and Betsy's like, oh, there's people here. I'm like, I don't care. (laughs) Texas just won the national championship game. It's the best moment of my life. So happy. I remember everything about that night. I remember the food. I remember faces. I remember watching the game. And then I also remember seeing the coach a few weeks later address his team in the moments after that game. And I was humbled because I thought it didn't get any better than this. And then I heard Coach Mac Brown say this to his guys. Let's watch this. I don't want this to be the best thing that's ever happened in your life. When you're 54, I don't want you to say winning a football game is the best thing that ever happened in my life. You'll have it, and you'll be a champion for the rest of your life. You make sure that's one of the best sports things in your life. But you promise me, if you got enough about you to win a national championship, you got enough about you to be a great citizen and a great role model, a great father, and a great leader in your family. And that's what we're looking for when you get out of here. That's what we want. I wasn't on that team. I never played it down. I didn't even go to that school. (laughs) And he looked there at his players afterward and said, don't let this define you. Don't get stuck here. Don't get stuck in a championship in January 4th, 2006. You can be better than this. If you can win this game, you can lead your families and your country and your kids in your house. You can be better. You can keep growing. And for us as believers in Jesus, we have the same question. What's next? For many of us, we've just experienced a spiritually significant event. For a lot of us in our church, we've just come through a follower series on the weekend. We've come through 10 weeks of a series called Rooted. That's okay, yeah, yeah, it's okay. We had a celebration on Thursday night that was just awesome. I don't know if you noticed, there's a bunch of students right here Okay, they just got back from their student retreat. Did you guys have a good time on your student retreat? Yeah, 
Okay? We have these spiritually significant experiences, and I don't want you to feel left out. You've probably had them too. If you haven't been through Rooted, you've gone through a camp in the summer. You've gone through a Bible study. You've had a time period in your life where you felt like you've peaked, where you've hit a mountaintop. And the reason we call it a mountaintop is it's usually followed by something that comes down. And so our question tonight of what's next or this morning, after a spiritually significant experience, how do we avoid regression or plateau and press on toward our goal of being conformed to the likeness of Christ? Because fall of 2017 is going to quickly evaporate and go away. And we have to continue pressing on to the life that God has called us to. So how are we going to do that? Well, we have three scripture stories that we're going to look at this morning. And the first one's found in the book of Joshua. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Joshua chapter 4. And Joshua chapter 4 finds... the people of Israel on the banks of the Jordan River. They're about to enter into the promised land, the promised land that was promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and here they are. And they had just come off of 40 years in the wilderness where the oldest people had died off because of their failure to believe in the power of God. And Moses had died off, and now Joshua has assumed leadership And they're going into the promised land and they come to the Jordan River. And the Jordan River's overflowing. And it's dangerous at this point to cross the Jordan River. But God tells Joshua, have the priests put the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders and have them wade into the waters. And so the priests obey and they put the Ark on their shoulders and they wade into the waters and the waters stop. Now, I don't know if you've ever been a river. I don't know if you've ever been in this little creek we have down here that's, that's flowing like two days a year, right? Water doesn't stop. It's not an accident. It's not just some occurrence that happens. No, God reached down. He stopped the waters from happening, but it gets better. Not only did he stop the waters, he dried the land, and the people of Israel had their second Red Sea experience. They crossed the dry land into the promised land. And when they got to the other banks, the Lord had them stop again. We pick up in Joshua 4, 1 through 7, where we remember what he has done. It says, when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people. From each tribe a man and command them saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua that called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord, your God into the midst of the Jordan and take each of you up a stone upon his shoulders, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in the time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. 
So the people of Israel got through. They got past the danger zone. They got into safety and God had them stop. And he sent 12 men back into the riverbed to pick up stones and to take them and to place them on the side. Now we don't know what it looked like when they placed them on the side, but we know it looked man-made. It looked like something that didn't naturally occur so that people would see it and have questions. So that when they came back to that spot and they said, this is unusual, this is not the way it's supposed to be, why is this? Leaders could say, parents could say, I'm glad you asked. Because when we, when our ancestors, when we were coming into the promised land, we came to the Jordan River and it was overflowing. And the Lord your God stopped the waters in its tracks. He did what? He stopped the water. And then he dried the land. He dried the land. He dried the land and we walked on dry land across in safety to the land that he has promised us. And we put these rocks here so that we could remember what he has done. And for them, it was a bunch of rocks on the side of the Jordan. And for us, it could be a lot of different things. When I was in high school, I had a leader tell me that I should put rocks in my pillow so that when I laid my head down to sleep at night, I would hit the rocks and then remember to pray. Now, that didn't last very long for me. I don't know if it had something to do with getting tired of hitting rocks on my head or if it had something to do with the washing machine. But that didn't last very long. But you know, one of the things I do right now is I use sticky notes. And I put sticky notes everywhere. I put them in my car. I put them on my computer. I put them on my desk. I put them there to remind me. When I'm going through a hard time, I pull out some scripture that's applicable and I write it down and I put it there so that I see it and I say it to myself and I pray it and I remember it because God has been faithful in the past and he will be faithful in the future. God will bring to mind sometimes a mentor or a relationship that has been very meaningful to me. And I'll pull out something and I'll write them a letter. I'll shoot them a text. I'll I'll pull up my phone and actually make an old-fashioned phone call and say, thank you so much for the role that you've played in my life. I would not be the husband that I am, the father that I am, the leader that I am, if not for the hand of God that he used in my life. I remember and I'm thankful Maybe it's something that you guys could put on your dining room table that every time you come together around dinner, your family sees it and remembers. This is what God has done. Let us be grateful to him. Let us remember and celebrate. Maybe it's your rooted book. You know, for the last 10 weeks, those of you who went through rooted, you've been filling out this book with with prayers in it, with personal answers to questions. You've been wrestling with who God is and you've been wrestling with brokenness in your life and how to get involved. And that book doesn't have to be something that collects dust on a shelf. It's something you can get out and you can look through and you can say, I was over here and God brought me over here and you can remember. What will that remembrance be in your life? We get to remember what our God has done. And then after we remember what he has done, we get to celebrate what he has done. Turn with me in the book of Luke to chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 has three stories that are all very similar. 
They all involve something that is lost. There's a lost sheep, there's a lost coin, and there's a lost son. He might be better known as the prodigal son. But in every one of these stories, something is lost, and then it is found, and then there is celebration. When the sheep is found, it says in verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. When a person crosses the line of faith from death to life, heaven celebrates. More so than over the 99 who are making good decisions. In Luke 15:10 with the lost coin, he says, "Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents." The angels are throwing a party when humanity makes that step of faith in Christ. But then we have the prodigal son. And I'm going to tell you the prodigal son in Brian paraphrase. There was a father who had two children. And the youngest of those, we don't know anything else about the relationship that they had other than the fact that he kind of wanted his father to be dead because he wanted the inheritance. He said, give me what is coming to me. Give me what I deserve. Give me my share of the inheritance. And for some reason, the father said, yes, I will give that to you. And the youngest son went and took that inheritance and went into another country. And it says that he spent it on wild living. Now, our brains can run crazy with what wild living looks like, but he wasn't spending it on the best of things. He was also using that money to buy friends. He had this group of people that he was seeking pleasure with. Then all of a sudden, the money ran out. He had no money anymore, and then strangely, he had no friends anymore And he found himself lonely and out of luck, down and broken and poor. So he went and found a job. And the only job that he could find was feeding the pigs. Now, I've been to a pig farm once. It doesn't smell very good. And there he was, in with the pigs, and his wages were the extra slop that he could feed himself with. And he's sitting there, broken and tired and alone, in shame and in guilt, saying, what am I doing? My father's servants don't even live this way. I'm going to pick myself up, and I'm going to go back and humble myself before my father, and I'm going to say, Father... I have sinned against heaven and against you. I don't even deserve to be called your son. Let me be one of your hired hands. So he picks himself up and he goes back and then it switches scenes and all of a sudden you're looking at the father and I've always pictured the father sitting there on a porch and he's watching over that hill. He's waiting for that son to come home and night after night after night he has hope that his dead and lost son will become alive and be found and he will walk down that path and night after night that hope is not realized but the father doesn't give up and he's sitting there again one evening And then all of a sudden, over the horizon, the sun comes and the father stands up and he folds his arms. says, this better be good. (laughs) No, no, no. That father stands up and he takes off running. I can only picture the restraint he had to show to not just tackle him. 
And the son says, Dad, I gotta talk to you, I gotta talk to you. I have sinned against heaven, I have sinned against you. I don't even deserve to be called your son. Please, please, please take me back. Let me, let me be one of your servants. And the father says, shh. No, 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 no. My son who was dead is now alive. He was lost and he's found. And he took the ring off his finger and he put it on his son's hand. And he took the robe off his back. And he didn't wait for the son to go take a shower and get all cleaned up. He said, no, in your filth, in everything that you are, here is the robe that I have for you because you are alive. And then they killed the fatted calf and they partied like it was 1999. And they went and had celebration and they had dancing and they were parting because the dead son was alive. It says here in verse 24, it says, for my son was dead and is alive again. He is lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And celebrates what we did on Thursday. We were here Thursday night, gathered in this room, and we heard people say, I have crossed the line of faith. I was dead, and now I'm alive. We had people through the last 10 weeks who said, I was enslaved to my sin. I was caught in a stronghold, but through confession in the power of the Spirit by the blood of Christ in my life, I have now found freedom to walk in Christ. People who said, I've been unengaged and sitting on the sidelines of faith and I've now decided to get in the game and to be generous and to apply my gifts and to serve the kingdom of God. And every time we make those decisions to follow God, there is a party and there is celebration. But the story of the prodigal son is not done yet. You see, someone comes to the house and observes the music and the dancing, and he says, this isn't one of the festival times. This isn't one of the normal celebration times. What is happening right now? They say, your brother who is dead is alive. He was lost, and now he is found. And he says, my dad never threw me a party. And he's sitting on the outside pouting. And the father comes out and says, son, come in, come join the festivities. And he says, you never did this for me. This isn't fair. This isn't right. And the father says, son, everything that belongs to me is yours. But your brother, your brother who was dead is now alive and he was lost but now he's found. Church, we have an opportunity to celebrate the work of God in people's lives. And when we celebrate in baptism, and when we celebrate in new faith, we are not celebrating the sin. We are not celebrating the story. We are celebrating the work of God in their life, and we should be the world's best party throwers. We don't have to stand on the outside looking in, wondering where ours is. We get to celebrate because every single time we celebrate the work of God in someone else's life, it reminds us to celebrate the work of God in our own life. Because our story might have a few details that are different, but it was the same. We were rebellious against the holy God. We were dead in our sins, and he looked down and he rescued us. And by the blood of the Savior, we have been saved And we get to celebrate. 
Every single time we gather to sing, every single time we gather on his word, we can celebrate, we can be in, we can participate. We have nothing to hold back. We have nothing to fear. Because we serve a God who celebrates, who has invited us to celebrate. And when we celebrate what he has done, it helps us not go back because we keep moving forward. And then lastly, we get to keep our eyes on Jesus. We get to keep our eyes on Jesus. How do we avoid regression? How do we avoid plateau? We keep our eyes on Jesus. For the last time, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14 has a very familiar story in it. It's the story of Jesus walking on water. And even if you've never heard this story before, I'm guessing you've heard the phrase, well, that guy thinks he walks on water. Well, we're going to talk about the one who actually did. His name is Jesus. Chapter 14, verse 22. It said, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Now, don't miss that. We usually read past the details to get to the story, but the details there are very significant. Why did the disciples get into the boat? Jesus made them. Why did they go to the other side? Because he told them to go to the other side. They're being good disciples. Get in the boat, go to the other side. Okay. They got in the boat and they went to the other side. They had no idea what was about to happen. Get into the boat, go into the other side. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Now, they were probably a little bit scared. Now, they were fishermen. They were used to the sea. But I get a picture that the wind and the waves were crashing in, and it was a little bit supernatural. And there's something going on that they don't get. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now this always makes me chuckle a little bit, right? Because this is what we say to people when they're afraid. Hey, don't be afraid. Are you going to make the waves go away? Are you going to help me with this thing that's coming? Oh, it's, it's you, okay, it is I, don't be afraid. And Peter says, if it is you, Lord, tell me to come. Command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. And so what happened to Peter? In the midst of a scary storm, he saw Jesus, and he had his eyes on Jesus. He said, Jesus, if that is you, tell me to come to you. And Jesus said, come. And Peter took a foot out of the boat and he put it on the water. And this lifelong fisherman, can you imagine his surprise to feel that that ground was solid beneath his feet? And he took that next step and he kept going because his eyes were fixed on Jesus. And that is happening to us when we go through spiritually significant experiences. 
We are stepping out of that boat and our eyes are on Jesus and we are fixed on him and we are following him with everything we say and do. And whether it is a student retreat or whether it is rooted, all these things do is help us to focus our eyes on Jesus. And our eyes are fixated on him because he's told us to get in the boat and he's told us to go across the sea. And then sometimes there's these waves. And in the midst of following Jesus, all of a sudden our eyes get sidetracked by the danger and the drama and everything that's going on around us. And that's what happened to Peter. In the midst of keeping his eyes on Jesus, he got sidetracked and started looking at what was around him and he began to sink. And this is why we regress and this is why we plateau. Because in the midst of doing exactly what Jesus has called us to do, we are following him and our eyes are fixed on him and then all of a sudden we get a little distracted by Monday. We get a little bit distracted by the holidays coming up and I have to deal with the in-laws again. And I get a little bit distracted by my son or daughter's not making really great decisions and I got to go over here and I got I to play Mr. Fix-It or Miss Fix-It. And all of a sudden we get so sidetracked by everything that's going on in life that we forget that we got to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus because that is the secret sauce of Rooted. That is the secret sauce of the student retreat. That is the secret sauce of the story that we're going to do in the the spring when we do the story of us and we look at 10 Old Testament stories and how they point us to Jesus and we're going to incorporate the rhythms of Rooted. Why? Because they help us fix on Jesus. When Rooted began, it was, who is God? And for people who have been in faith for a long time, it was a good refresher that God is is three in one, that he is a trinity and that he loved us. And some people for the first time came to understand that a loving God looked down on them in their sin and sent his one and only son to come die in their place so that we might be forgiven. And it drove us into the word. It drove us to spend time daily with the Lord because spending time with the Lord fixes our eyes on Jesus. And then we had a prayer experience. And we got together with other believers and we prayed together. A lot of us don't do that regularly. Pray together. And then we split up. And we spent an hour alone with God. And some people had never done that before. And it was awesome. And you know what happens when you spend time with God? He begins to reveal himself to you. And in revealing himself to you, he often reveals things about you. And all of a sudden, we're dealing with strongholds. And all of a sudden, we have things being confessed left and right that you weren't prepared to confess because you just started this as a program. But now you've invited God into your life. You're keeping your eyes fixated on Jesus. And he is bringing these things out. And we are dealing with our sin and we're seeing healing and forgiveness. We're seeing chains being broken. And then we talk about who we are. We talk about that we've been made with a purpose. Everyone in here was created for a purpose to serve God, their king, by looking more like Jesus. And we've been given individual gifts and we're supposed to go out and apply those and to share them with one another. We learn how to be generous. We learn how to celebrate with baptism and communion and we learn how to be the church. You don't come to church. You are the church. 
And Rooted 2017, Student Retreat 2017 is all about fixing your eyes on Jesus. Because all of a sudden Christmas break comes. All of a sudden the new semester starts. All of a sudden you back into some of your patterns and we have a tendency to let it go. And what happens when you sink? You cry out like Peter, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches down and he pulls you back and he refixes his, your gaze on him. Because what you need for your Christian life is not the next program. What you need in your Christian life is not the next study. It's not the next experience. You need studies and you need experiences and you need one another, but you need them in Christ. And when you keep your eyes fixated on Jesus, you will walk in him and continue to grow in him and be conformed in his likeness no matter where you are or what you're doing. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, you are moving all over this world. You are doing incredible things in different countries and in different tribes and tongues and languages. You are doing things all over this country and you are doing things in Topeka. And Father, we are glad that we get to be a part of that. Father, I am so thankful for the students who went on the student retreat. Father, and just laid it all in front of you. Father, I'm thankful for the commitments they made and we're going to celebrate with them in baptism here in a few minutes. But Father, more than anything, I pray that you would continue to give them Jesus. Father, for the people who have walked through Rooted and through the Follower series, you have done great things. You have broken strongholds. You have broken chains. You have set people free. You have caused people to go from death to life. Father, I pray that it doesn't stop. That we don't look back on the fall of 2017 and say, that's as good as it got but that we would continue day by day to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus so that we continue to grow and look more and more like him. Father, may we understand that all we need is Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.